Before we begin this week's Parsha podcast, I have to tell you about the miracle that happened to me today. Last night, so today's Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. Last night, Tuesday night, I'm trying to prepare this week's Parsha podcast and I have nothing. Now, truth is, I didn't really have nothing. I had some stubs. I had some beginnings of some ideas of what potentially I would want to talk about on this week's Parsha podcast, but I really had nothing to say. And then I woke up this morning with essentially a full-fledged podcast, the podcast that you're about to hear, all ready to go. I dreamt about it. It was a miraculous dream. And I think it's really befitting this week's Parsha. Because this week's Parsha has the highest dream density of any Parsha of the 54 Parshas of the Torah. There are four prophetic dreams in our Parsha. And our sages always tell us that whenever you are reading the Parsha, the energy and the themes and the ideas of the Parsha are going to be present in the world during that week. That's my theory, that this is the week that is most auspicious and propitious and the most capable of producing wonderful, miraculous, prophetic Torah dreams. It happened. It's a miracle. Thank you, the Almighty. It's Thanksgiving. We have to thank the Almighty. Of course, thank all of y'all for joining us today on this Amazing journey of the Parsha podcast. Let us begin. But before we begin, I want to read the amazing review of the week on Apple Podcasts. This is a review from a user named FFP Novikov. And the review is titled, Best Podcast Ever! Exclamation point, five stars. And he writes, short and sweet, everyone should listen to this podcast. This rabbi is dropping knowledge bombs weekly, exclamation point. This is life-changing, exclamation point, exclamation point. Thank you so much, FFP Novikov, for submitting that beautiful and heartening five-star review via Apple Podcasts. I like how you called what we do here on the Parsha Podcast knowledge bombs. Isn't that nice? Knowledge bombs. It's way better than incendiary insights, or perhaps a tinderbox of Torah, or exuberant explosive explications. Knowledge bombs are way better. Thank you, FFP Novikov, for those kind words. And for the five-star review, reading about how the knowledge bombs of the Parsha podcast have been life-changing, reading that was a real blast. So let's begin with this week's Parsha podcast. And I hope this one will live up to the hype. I hope it will be as meaningful and exciting and life-changing. Let me know what you think. RabbiWalby at gmail.com. Now, whether or not this is a life-changing podcast, I don't know. We'll have to let history and the audience decide. But this is definitely a life-changing Parsha. It's neatly divided into three storylines. We have Act 1, and that is Joseph and his brothers and their tenuous relationship. Joseph is, of course, daddy's favorite. Jacob makes him a special tunic. 
He snitches on his brothers to Jacob. He has megalomaniacal dreams. He amplifies the enmity of his brothers and they scheme to kill him and they settle with selling him as a slave. And then the brothers stage Joseph's death. They dunk his precious tunic in blood and present it to Jacob. That's the first part of the Parsha. And then the storyline transitions to Judah and Tamar. Judah is demoted. He gets married. He has three sons. The first son marries a woman named Tamar. But the first son, Er, dies because he erred with the sin of spilling seed, Rashi tells us. He refused to attempt to impregnate his wife Tamar out of fear that it would tarnish her beauty. And then after he dies, after Er dies, Onan marries Tamar in Yibam. This is the concept when there are two brothers and one of them dies childless and the second brother will marry the widow of the first brother, his sister-in-law in effect, in order to fulfill a legacy for the deceased brother. But Onan, he also spills a seed. He also refuses to try to impregnate his wife Tamar. He's worried that the kids will be associated with Er, his older brother. So he dies too of this sin. Now Judah has a third son, Shelah, and he thinks that this woman is problematic. He sends her away. I'll let you know. I'll send you a postcard when Shelah is ready. Now she, of course, realizes that she ain't being invited back. So she hatches a bold plan. She dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Judah. And they spend the night together. And as collateral for payment, he gives her identifying marks like a staff and a signet ring, and then she disappears. And three months later, it's found out that Tamar is pregnant, out of wedlock. Her first two husbands are both dead. And at the time, that was an executable offense. And she's brought before the court. And of all people, Judah is the judge in her case. And the Midrash tells us that present at this court case are none other than Isaac and Jacob. Isaac, of course, is still alive. We mentioned last week. Now, she doesn't spill the beans and give him out. She tells Judah, well, the owner of these things is the father. He fesses up. And in the end, it actually turns out that it was a legal union because Yibum, that kind of what's called Leverite marriage where the brother marries his sister-in-law, the widow, before Sinai, that was any relative. So therefore, Judah was within his right to be with Tamar. Regardless, she bears twins, including the forbearer of Messiah, Peretz. That is the second act of our Parsha. And the third part of the Parsha pitched up where left off the storyline of Joseph. Now Joseph is enslaved in Egypt and he's flourishing as a slave. And then he's prepositioned by his master's wife. He refuses to capitulate. He refuses to sin and he is framed, ends up in jail. In jail, he too flourishes. And then he gets two really interesting cellmates, disgraced servants of Pharaoh, successfully accurately, clairvoyantly interprets their dreams. The butler is restored to his post. The baker is beheaded and strung up, hung up his corpses. And instead of remembering Joseph and invoking Joseph's plight in front of Pharaoh, the butler 
does not do that, and Joseph is forgotten. And that is where next week's Parsha picks up. It's two years later, and Joseph is remembered. That is our Parsha in a nutshell, like we said. It's a life-changing Parsha, of course. I want to focus on, in this week's Parsha podcast, the first Rashi of the first verse of our Parsha. Parsha's Vayeshev starts, Vayeshev Yaakov Beretz Muguri Aviv. Yaakov settled, Jacob settled in the land of his father, his father's homeland. Beretz Canaan in the land of Canaan. So of course, last week we had, or two weeks ago, we had Jacob traveling to Haran and spending some time with Laban. And last week he once again came back to Canaan, had to navigate, of course, the crises of Esav and Esav's angel and, of course, what happened in Shechem. But he is now settled. He is dwelling in the land of Canaan, in the land of his father. That's the first verse of our Parsha. Now, Rashi explains this verse. Now, the way Rashi works, he often does not ask a question. He just gives us the answer. So he intimates the question by telling us the answer. You know, one of the most enjoyable things about studying the parsha with Rashi is trying to figure out what is bothering Rashi. Why is he compelled to answer or to say something? There's something that's problematic about the verse if you read it simply, and therefore Rashi is trying to resolve a question. So what's the question with this verse? Vayeshev Yaakov Beretz Megurei Aviv. Jacob is settling. He's living in the, the homeland of his father, in the land of Canaan. It seems like it's a problem-free verse. So I think that Rashi's question that he is intimating is that this verse seems to be superfluous. It is just saying that Jacob settled. It's not really meaningful. There's no salient new information being conveyed in this verse. In fact, last week's parasha talks about Jacob arriving into the land of Canaan and presumably he settled there. What is this verse telling us what is the lesson? So Rashi says something fascinating. We actually mentioned this in last week's Parsha podcast briefly. After it tells us the settlements of Esav and his children in a very short fashion, the final 43 verses of last week's Parsha, as we talked about at great length in last week's Parsha podcast, the final 43 verses of last week's Parsha detail, delineate, outline the family of Esav. But they weren't so important. They weren't so dignified. And the Torah doesn't tell us the details of how they settled and all the wars that they had and how exactly they conquered the land of the Chori, the Chori people. It doesn't give us the complete unabridged version of the chronicles of Asaph. So after it finishes in a very succinct way, the story of Asaph. The verse now pivots to talk about Jacob and his family and the settlement and the chronicles of Jacob and his family in a very long way. Unabridged version. All the cause and effect of what led to what. Because they are important in the eyes of God and therefore the Torah elongates, elaborates their story. There's precedent to this. We have the 10 generations from Adam to Noah 
And it runs through the genealogy really quickly. He had him and he had him and so on. And then when it gets to Noah, it stops and it tells the story at length. Similarly, with the 10 generations from Noah to Abraham, it runs through the generations really quickly. But once it arrives at Abraham, a very important person, the Torah elaborates on his story. And then Rashi concludes by furnishing an amazing analogy. It's a marshal, it's a parable to a gem, to a diamond that fell into the sand. And a person is feeling around in the sand and taking a sieve and sifting through the sand until you find the diamond. And once you find the diamond, you take all the pebbles and discard them and you take the diamond, which was what you actually wanted initially. Rashi's question is about the first verse of our Parsha. Jacob settled. He settled the land of Isaac and the land of Canaan. Nothing really happened. What is the lesson? And his answer, at least the first answer, is that even the most mundane parts of Jacob's life are worthy of the Torah telling us. Asaph's entire empire, it's the story is told in a few short verses. But every little twist and turn of Jacob's story is told. And even the fact that he settled in the homeland of his father in Canaan, even that is pregnant with meaning. Asaph's like a pebble. You need to examine the pile of pebbles because maybe there's some diamond mixed in. But once you find the diamond... You no longer need the pebbles, and they are discarded. Asaph is a pebble, and Jacob is the diamond. You run through the storyline of Asaph quickly. You sift through his family. And when it's done, you discover the diamond. You have arrived at your goal. And once you have the diamond, you marvel at it. You examine it from every angle. You scrutinize it. You turn it in every direction. You think about it. Maybe you even dream about it. You talk about it. It becomes the object of your fascination. It's an amazing insight here in Rashi. There are two kinds of rocks. There's pebbles and there's diamonds. And the Torah's narratives also fall into two categories. You have the sifting of pebbles to be discarded. And then you have the discovery of the diamonds to be examined at length and to be marveled upon. If you had to ask us, you know, what's more important? Which story is more interesting? Which story should the Torah spend more time on? The wars and the conquests and the empires and the empires that Asaph dislocated the whole story of Asaph. Is that more important? Or the fact that Jacob settled peacefully, at least for the time being, in his homeland? If you were to ask us, by our standards of if it bleeds, it leads, we would think the story of Asaph is much more important. You know, war is really good business for the press. It tells over stories that people are really Interested in hearing about. But Rashi and the Torah are telling us that the history of pebbles doesn't matter. The heroism, the triumphs, the wars of the pebbles are immaterial in the eyes of the Torah. 
the mere existence of the diamond that is worthier of mention that demands more real estate in the Torah just because the Torah cares about the diamonds much more than the pebbles. Both a pebble and a diamond are rocks. But you've never seen a pebble in a museum. You've never read a story about a pebble. Diamonds, on the other hand, are fawned over, are examined, are cherished, are coveted. Diamonds are named. You have the Hope Diamond. You have the Tiffany Yellow Diamond. These are famous rocks. They have Wikipedia pages. They have long storied histories. Diamonds are things that people care about immensely. People will travel to the ends of the world, to the depths of the ocean to find one. They traveled to an asteroid if it had a diamond in it. Pebbles get stuck in your tires. You have a pebble and you have a diamond. One is a rock and one is a rock. But one is something that people recite poems over. One of them adorns the crowns of kings and queens. One is guarded with the highest level of security. And the other is inconsequential. The Torah sifts through the pebbles quickly. And every twist and turn and up and down and minor event in the lives of the diamonds are worthy of inquiry and fascination. We have the wars and conquests of Asaph. And in the eyes of the Torah, they are not as important as the dreams of the cellmates of Joseph. Asaph's wars, that's one big pebble. The stories of people that are adjacent in the proximity of the family of Jacob, that's the encasing of a diamond and that matters. This is the first Rashi of our Parsha, and I think it's it's actually a theme that repeats itself throughout the whole Parsha. Jacob is a diamond. What does it mean to be a diamond? Well, for one, it means extra scrutiny. If you ever see a jeweler, a gemologist, handling a diamond, they put it on their fingers And they have a special light that doesn't distort the color. And they look at the color and the clarity and the carrots and the cut. All kinds of different ways you cut these special rocks. And they have these special loops like magnifying glasses to examine every angle. And they examine it from every direction. And there's very little tolerance for imperfection. One small black dot, one small discoloration, it changes everything. That is the fate of diamonds. And this is really the story of the whole Torah. Whenever the Torah is dealing with diamonds, it has very little tolerance, a very short leash for any misdeeds. So for example, just in our parsha, Jacob gave one of his sons a sweater. Does that sound like the worst sin in the world? Doesn't sound so bad. It's a little favoritism. 
but Jacob is heavily criticized for showing favoritism to one son over the others. For a diamond, any flaw is unacceptable. You're a diamond after all. At the end of our parasha, Joseph is languishing in prison and Arsadis tells the reason why he had to spend two more years in prison is because he relied too heavily on the butler. He shouldn't have relied on the butler. He should have maybe said, hey, remember me before Pharaoh, but not actually relying on it. He relied too much on a human. And therefore, God says, okay, two more years in the slammer for you. His incarceration is extended for two years. There is very little flexibility for blunders when it comes to diamonds. When you're a diamond, there's a very low tolerance for imperfections. There's many examples of this in the Torah. So just last week, we had Reuben rearranging Jacob's bed. And this flaw with the Torah's loop on the diamond that is the family of Jacob, everything's amplified. That small little spot in that diamond, you intervened in Jacob's conjugal life. You involve yourself in things that are not your concern. You dragged his bed out of one tent into another tent doesn't sound like it's the worst sin in the world in the loop of the Torah. Examining this diamond, you see a big black splotch because a diamond, every flaw, is magnified. There's another aspect of this. Diamonds, they say, are forever. The consequences of diamonds are eternal. After all, if they're included in the eternal Torah, the story of the Jewish people were told in our in this Rashi, beginning of our parsha, the story of the Jewish people, the Torah, it's the story of diamonds. They matter forever. So listen to this. Joseph is coming to check up on his brothers, and they see him from a distance, chapter 37, verse 19, and they start discussing and plotting and scheming what to do with him. Look, here is the dreamer coming. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. That was the suggestion of two of the brothers. We'll say a wild beast came and ate him. And let's see what happens with those dreams. So verse 21, Vayishma Ruvain, and Ruvain heard what his brothers were plotting, Adam, and he saved Joseph. From them. Vayomer, and he said, Lona Kenunefesh, we will not strike him with a mortal blow. Instead, says Ruvain, don't spill blood, throw him into the pit alive, but don't extend your hand to touch him. And the verse attests that Reuben's intention was to save Joseph in order to return him to his father. So Reuben says, you know what? Don't do anything. Don't kill him. Throw him into the pit. His plan was not just to leave him there languishing in the pit, to extract him from the pit and to return him to Jacob. That's the plan that Reuben had. Ultimately, Reuben, we're told in Rashi, leaves the scene and they see a bunch of traveling Ishmaelites 
and they sell him to the Ishmaelites and the Tamidianites, and he's sold many times. Eventually, he's sold to Egypt. Reuben comes back, and he examines the pit, but it's empty, and he is beside himself. He tears, he rends his garments, and he is very disappointed that he failed at his mission. The Midrash says something incredible. This Midrash is found in Midrash Rabbah, in the book of Ruth, chapter 5, Midrash teaching number 6. It says that had Reuben known at the time that this story, that this episode, would be chronicled for all eternity in the Torah, had he known that God would write in the Torah and it would say, chapter 37, verse 21, Reuben heard and he saved them, what would he have done? If he knew that this would be etched for all eternity, he would have taken Joseph, put him on his shoulders, and bring him back to Jacob. He would have said, if you want to touch him, you have to kill me. This Midrash is saying something fascinating. Reuben was a diamond. But he momentarily forgot that he was a diamond, and that everything he does reverberates for all eternity. Maybe he thought, well, this is like the story of Asaph. You know, things happen. For a second, he operated like a pebble, and he forgot that he was a diamond, and had he known that this would be in the Torah, the story of this diamond would be the Torah, he would have put him on his shoulder and said, this is, I'm not going to allow this, not on my watch. You know what? If you want to touch Joseph, you have to shoot me. That's what he would have done had he realized that he was a diamond. Had he known at the time, he would have done everything, pulled all the stops to save Joseph. Because Reuben forgot that he was a diamond, that's why he made this mistake. Now you contrast this episode with the story later on in the Parsha. Joseph is being prepositioned by his master's wife, And he is continually resisting her seductions until one day it seems like he is going to give in. He comes home one day to do his work, two opinions of the Talmud, according to one opinion, to do his actual work. According to a second opinion, it's to give in, it's to finally yield to the temptation, to the seductions of Mrs. Potiphar. And then Rashi tells us something fascinating. And we talked about this, I think, in last year's Parsha podcast. At that time, says Rashi, the visage of his father Jacob appeared to him in the window and told him the following. Joseph was on the verge of sinning. And a hologram a visage, a countenance of the face of Jacob appeared in the window and said to Joseph, Joseph, in the future, you and your brothers are destined to be etched on the stones of the aphod, which is the apron-like garment that the high priest wore in the temple. And it's going to say 12 names, the names of my 12 sons. And right now, your name is still included. If you go ahead with this, 
your name will be permanently removed from amongst them, and instead you will be called the patron of harlots. When Joseph heard that, he was able to muster up the courage and the fortitude to resist the temptation, to resist the sin, to run away, to leave his clothing behind, and to risk it all, to not give in because of the eternal consequences inherent in capitulation. Joseph was saved. Joseph is a hero for all eternity. Why? What saved Joseph? What saved Joseph is that he remembered that he was a diamond. The diamond is indeed permanently etched upon the shoulders of the coin god on the aphod. And he realized the deeds of the diamonds matter forever. I don't want to make the big mistake of trading a few minutes of short-term pleasure for my eternal place together with my brothers on the shoulder blades of the coin god doll, the high priest in the temple for hundreds of years. The way Joseph overcame his challenge was by remembering that he's a diamond and diamonds are forever. And the deeds of diamonds reverberate for all eternity. The Talmud tells us in the book of Gittin on page 58a, it's talking about the family of Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, the last high priest of the Jewish nation. Rabbi Yishmael was the final high priest at the end of the Second Temple. And in the aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple, many thousands of Jews were taken as slaves to Rome. And amongst the slaves were the children, the son and daughter of the high priest of Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. Now, because this high priest walked into the Holy of Holies, he was able to draw out such holiness that he himself was so beautiful, he was the most beautiful man in the world. And his children were absolutely stunning. So two Romans each bought a slave. One was a male. We know as the, we know that person was the son of Rabbi Ishmael. Ben Elisha, high priest. And one of them bought the daughter. And they were chatting, tells us the Talmud. They were chatting, these two Romans, and said, I bought the most gorgeous, beautiful, stunning, handsome male slave. And the other Roman says, well, I bought the most stunning, gorgeous, pretty, incredible female slave. So they said, you know what, let's make a deal. What we'll do is, let's put these two slaves together. Let them marry each other. And could you imagine how gorgeous those kids would be? Let's put them together and we'll split the babies. Not the one baby, but we'll split the babies that will ensue from this amazing coupling of the most gorgeous male servant, slave, and the most gorgeous female slave. What an idea. So they decide indeed to do that. They secluded 
these two slaves, who unbeknownst to them are siblings, in a room. And they say, you know what? Let nature, let biology take its course. And these two slaves, they recognize what's happening. And he goes to one corner of the room and he says, I'm a Cohen. My father was the high priest of the Jewish people. I come from royalty. I'm not going to spend time with this slave. And she goes to the other corner. And she says, I'm a daughter of a priest, of a coin. I'm a daughter of a coin gadol, of a high priest. I descend from royalty. I'm not going to spend time with this slave. And the whole night, they're weeping at the sorry state of their being in opposite sides of this room. And then morning comes, and they could finally see, and they realize that they're siblings. And they run and hug each other, says the Talmud, and they start crying, and they cry together until their souls departed. So, of course, it's a very tragic story. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that this story really embodies the lamentation of Jeremiah, for these I weep, my eyes are crying rivers of tears. But we see an idea. How did these two siblings maintain their purity and fidelity in very trying situations? They recognize that they're princes. I'm a prince. I'm a diamond. I'm not going to act like a degenerate. I'm a princess. I'm a diamond. I'm not going to act like a degenerate. I matter. I have an eternal legacy. The Almighty meticulously records every one of my deeds. I'm above that. That is the attitude of diamonds. I'm thinking that there's something called diplomatic language. There's diplomatic Lingo, where every word is measured, every act is scrutinized, certain words mean specific things, and every gaffe that happens on the international stage makes world news. If you want a picture of what it means to be a diamond, study what happens when diplomats get together. Diamonds matter a lot more than pebbles. Perhaps we can also suggest, based upon this framework, every individual's life can also be divided into pebble time and diamond time. Just as some people are diamonds and some are pebbles, we have the ace of people and the Jacob people, diamonds and pebbles, every individual has times of their lives that are actions or deeds of pebbles and deeds of diamonds. You accrue, so to speak, a coffer of diamonds and a coffer of pebbles. And the mission tells us in the end of Perkyavos that when someone dies, what accompanies them? Not the material possessions that they worked so hard to amass in their lifetime. The only thing that accompanies a person when they're dying The only thing that a person truly owns is the Torah and the mitzvot that they did in their lifetime. 
And quotes a verse in Proverbs, When you walk, your Torah, your mitzvos, accompany you. When you go lay down, it will guard you. When you wake up, it will be your conversation. When you walk in this world, your Torah is with you. When you lay down in the grave, what guards you from all the terrible things that are trying to attack you? The Torah and the mitzvot that you did. When you wake up, for all eternity, in all Abba, that will be with you even then. The funeral is like, perhaps we could say, a sifter, a sieve. It's going to select from a person's life the things that are eternal, the actual diamonds, and it will discard the things that no longer matter. Just like the Almighty, in the analogy of Rashi, you have a diamond and it's stuck amongst all the dust and all the pebbles and all the dirt. You have to sift and find the diamond, really death, and certainly the way it's actually perceived by our soul. It's the same kind of thing. A person has, in their lifetime, all kinds of things that they did, all kinds of accomplishments that they made. But many of them are pebbles. They're useless. And death is like the sifter. And the only thing that actually accompanies them forever, the only thing that's walking them, so to speak, to their funeral, with them in their grave, in heaven, after they're resurrected, in Omaba. The only diamonds that matter are the mitzvahs and the Torah. There's an amazing analogy that I've heard many times. I actually found it uh, courtesy of some of my friends here in Houston. I found it in the book called Torah's Habayas, which means the Torah of the house, written by the Chavetz Chaim, chapter 1. He says something fascinating. He's talking about Torah study and the imperative of Torah study. And you have to study Torah even when you're traveling. Why is that so? So he explains with an analogy, the reason why our soul came to this world and the soul has to be clothed in coarse physicality. How is it possible we have a holy soul and it's put in this very ephemeral, sinful body? It's thrown into this world for a very specific reason. Because in this world, there are diamonds that are freely available. There is no world like our world where spiritual diamonds are this large and plentiful. And the reason why our soul is placed here, the scoop up diamonds that are tremendously valuable in the spiritual world. But the problem is that once we get here, we forget about what our true life is all about. We forget about the fact that we're a soul. We have a Yetzirah that tries to deceive and delude us into making poor choices of what to do and what to prioritize in our life. And we get here and our soul says, okay, look how many diamonds are available. But the Yetzirah says, well, diamonds, 
There's so many pebbles. Look at these pebbles. Let's focus on the pebbles. And all the things that actually matter for eternity, the things that are the actual agenda of our soul, all those things are ignored. The things that adorn the crowns of kings that are found over here with great number, everywhere you go, every moment of your day, you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah. Mitzvahs are plentiful, and they are shockingly cheap and affordable here. It's so easy to do something good. It's so easy to stop by a mezuzah and remember the Almighty. It's easy to say the Shema. It's easy to pray. It's not hard to study Torah. Torah is more accessible today than it ever was. Mitzvahs are easy. Every second that you keep Shabbos, it's a mitzvah. How many mitzvahs can you accrue in one Shabbos? Every time you smile at your friend, you do kindness, you're generous, you're a good friend, you say something nice to someone else. Mitzvahs are plentiful. Wherever you go, wherever you turn, there are mountains of mitzvahs there for the taking. Each one of them is a hope diamond, a Tiffany yellow diamond in the spiritual world. Our soul is here to go scoop them up, stockpile them before we get back before we head back on the return journey, back to where we came from. And the problem is we don't recognize that. We live lives, thanks to the Yitzhah thanks to, you know, that's, of course, the principle of free will, but we live lives that idolize pebbles. Now that we idolize pebbles, we disdain diamonds. You know, I was thinking, if you look at the news, Everyone could do this as a study. Let's try this. And of course, in the uh, the spirit of bipartisanship, let's try looking at both CNN and Fox News and look at all the headlines and think about how many headlines are about things that matter, things that will accompany us as we go to our funeral, be with us in our grave, be with us for all eternity. Things that the soul was here to try to amass. And how many are things that are nonsense, that are just pebbles? I surmise that if we look at the home pages of the aforementioned websites, it is very unlikely that they will be talking about anything but pebbles. You'll see a lot of news about celebrities, all pebbles. You'll go to the sports section. You'll see news about grown men and women, playing a child's game. You know, today, actually right now, they are starting the World Championship of Chess in Dubai. It was supposed to be last year, but because of the pandemic, it's delayed to this year, 2021. Now, if you happen to be listening to this sometime in the future, today is still 2021, November 24th, Wednesday, Parshas Vayeshev, and they're about to have a World Series of chess. And they're having interviews and press conferences and people can study every move. It's all pebbles. It's pebbles. People playing a children's game. This is not what your soul is here for. Your soul is here to earn spiritual accomplishments that will benefit it for all eternity. And I have to say, I don't want to judge anyone because I kind of have a weakness for for the chess and... ah. 
I, it's hard for me to say, but it's true. I am kind of interested in watching the games. But our world, sorry, Dan, I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone. But if we're thinking about this logically, these things don't actually matter. Our world is obsessed with pebbles. In that aforementioned sports section, if you look at uh, the news about golf, you may even see a story about a place called Pebble Beach. It's the almighty winking at you. This is all pebbles. What makes the newswire here? All stories about pebbles. You know that in heaven, there's also news. But the heavenly bulletin doesn't care at all about the pebbles. It's all about the diamonds. It doesn't talk about the wars and the conquests, the triumphs of Asaph. It doesn't talk about celebrities or sports, politics. It wastes no time talking about pebbles. It's all diamond news. What would be in the headlines? What would make the heavenly gazette? Well, in our parsha, the big story splashed on the first page above the fold would talk about how Tamar risked her life to not embarrass Judah. It's better to jump into a fiery furnace than not to whiten someone's face publicly. Headline, breaking news. Maybe the next story would be about Judah admitted his wrongdoing. He fessed up even though was a national embarrassment. He is presiding over this court that's judging this woman, and it turns out he's the one who did the crime. And he says, she's right, and I'm wrong. That fortitude, that ability to admit someone's own shortcomings, what does that take? That is the deed of a diamond. That is front page news in the Heavenly Gazette. Joseph overcame his temptation. That is a huge story in heaven. Even today, not outside of the Parsha, what would make heavenly news? Someone studied Torah. And it was hard for them. And I wanted to stop after five minutes, but they pushed on for another 10 minutes. Wow, all the angels are gathering around and they're all looking, what an amazing story. And they're talking about it and, and they're, they're, they're analyzing it. Someone kept their first Shabbos. They didn't smoke a cigarette or turn on their phones the whole Shabbos. Wow, what an amazing story. Could you believe it? Someone overcame temptation. Someone did a great mitzvah. Someone didn't embarrass someone publicly. They bit their tongue. Diamonds, diamonds, diamonds. No stories about Pebble Beach. Only about diamonds. My dear brother-in-law, who we talk about a lot of here, of course, Shmuley Botnik, he sent me a story this week, which is not really relevant, but it reminded me of the story. There was a gentleman by the name of Rabbi Avram Yeshaya German. I don't know how to pronounce that. I guess it's spelled German. He taught in a yeshiva for students with, shall we say, a... Uh, a less robust background in Jewish observance and Torah observance. And there was a new boy who came to the yeshiva and he was a smoker. And he says, I want to keep my first Shabbos. I want to do a whole Shabbos completely as per the rules of the Almighty. 
And Shabbos afternoon, he's already pacing. You know, it's like you're pacing. Oh, I really need that cigarette because your body's demanding the nicotine fix. I need it. And he's pacing, 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 pacing. Finally, Shabbos ends. He runs outside and starts smoking a cigarette, inhaling all those carcinogens. He needs to get back to his equilibrium. So the rabbi tells him, no, 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 you have to smoke this inside. Smoke inside? Who smokes inside? I want you in the house, in the living room, you smoke the cigarette. Why? He says, you kept the whole Shabbos without smoking at all, even though it was very difficult for you. This cigarette, this smoke, has the same holiness of the burning of the ktoris, of burning of the incense in the temple. I want it in my house. I want this blessing in my house. That story, that story is front page news for a month in the heavenly gazette. There are pebbles and there are diamonds. At Sinai, our nation became a nation of diyamonds. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Asav is known as an NPC. His stories are the tales of pebbles. We are the real players. We are the diamonds. The Mishnah says, a person is obligated to say, Bishvili nivra ha'olam, the world created for me. I'm a diamond. I matter. God cares about me. I am responsible for all of humanity. That sounds, you know, a little bit megalomaniacal. It sounds like dreams of grandeur. But you are a diamond. The Talmud tells us that when a person is about to do a deed, a mitzvah, or a sin, they have to imagine that you are exactly 50-50. Half your deeds are mitzvahs and half are sins. Not only that, the world is exactly 50-50. Half of the collective deeds of the world are mitzvahs and the other half is sins. And therefore, the next choice that you make, the next deed that you do, determines the direction of everyone. Is the world engulfed in a nuclear holocaust? Is the world ushered into eternal utopia? You decide the fate of the world. You are a diamond. You matter. Your choices reverberate forever. You have all this power in your hands. And even within a single person, we are given a golden opportunity to stockpile diamonds. If you could speak to your great-grandfather or your great-great-great-great-grandfather who is now in heaven, and you ask him, what would you trade for one more day to do mitzvahs? Once you know the power of mitzvahs and the impact of mitzvahs in heaven and the eternal benefit that they give the ones who do it, once you know that, you are willing to trade everything for one more day, one more hour, even one more minute to do a mitzvah. And we're here and we're walking around and all we care about are pebbles. There's a place in Arkansas that my dear friend Bill told me about. It's called Diamond Crater Park. 
What is Diamond Crater Park? Well, it's a park of diamonds that's open to the public. It's the only place in the world that's like a diamond field or like a diamond mine. Open to the public. You walk in, you pay $10 to park your car, and you go walk around all these many, many vast acreages that have diamonds in them. And every day, there's thousands of people that go there, and one or two people find a diamond. Most of them are very small, but there have been some really big diamonds that were discovered. That's Diamond Crater Park. Our world is like Diamond Crater Park. It's just the opposite. It's not like you, if you spend a whole day there, maybe you'll find a tiny little pinhole size diamond. It's the opposite. There are cartons, barrels, cornucopias full of diamonds everywhere. And instead of just stooping them up and stockpiling them and recognizing that they are around forever, and they are going to accompany us to our funeral. They'll guard us in our grave. They'll occupy us for eternity in Omaba. We ignore them to our peril. You are a diamond. You are not a pebble. You're a diamond, and you're here to earn diamonds. You are not a pebble, and don't waste your trip to the Diamond Crater Park. That's bursting with diamonds, scooping up just the pebbles. Okay, let's get this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready for this? Judah. The Hebrew name for Judah is Yehuda. Why is Judah called Judah? Why is it called Yehuda? So there are two episodes that tell us the reason why he's called Yehuda. Number one, at his birth, he was the fourth son born to Leah. Rashi tells us that Jacob had four wives and he was destined to have 12 sons and therefore every wife was supposed to be the mother of three if things worked out, if things were distributed evenly. On average, everyone was supposed to have three and she had four and she wanted to thank God and she named Yehuda, Yehuda, which means thanks, appreciation, gratitude to the Almighty for giving me a fourth son. That's one of the reasons why Judah's called Judah. Judah's also called Judah, Yehuda, because Judah admitted his guilt. What does it mean to be moda? It means to admit, to admit when you're wrong, to be moda al ha'emes. And this is Parsha. He discovered that he was really guilty party. He was the one who slept with Tamar and he acknowledged it. He admitted it in front of all. And that is why his name is called Judah, because the word Yehuda in addition to meaning appreciation, appreciating the goodness that someone else does, it also means admission of one's own guilt. So the exquisite insight is as follows. You know, isn't it strange? We know that Hebrew is not just a random language where words that have no connection at all have the same word, like a homonym. There's a concept of a homonym in English. We have two words that mean totally different things, and they share the pronunciation. In Hebrew, there are no random homonyms. So why are the two names of Judah, the two names of Hoda'ah, Yehuda, why do they mean totally different things? Why does the same word mean both appreciation and gratitude for good that someone else did to you 
and admission of guilt when you make a mistake. So here's the exquisite insight. These two characteristics are two sides of one coin. We are inherently, at least by default, selfish people. We live by ourselves. We care about ourselves. This is the product of the Yitzhara. It causes us both delusional self-righteousness and a difficulty in seeing the good of others. The way the Yitzhara wants us to work, wants, to, wants us to interface with the world, is to view ourselves as being all good and everyone else as all bad. What is the quality of Yehuda? The quality of Yehuda is to defeat the Yetzirah, to defeat this system of thinking, to be an honest assessor of what's good and what's bad. To be able to see your own shortcomings is another angle of being able to see the goodness of others. Both are Yehuda. The same quality that is required for me to acknowledge the good that someone else did to me, that demands the same quality that's needed for me to admit my own guilt. Now, what's interesting about this is that the opposite, ingratitude and a resistance to admit your own guilt, they also share a word in Hebrew, the word kofer, which means, a third interpretation of that means a heretic, Someone who is selfish, someone who views themselves as all righteous and everyone else is all guilty, they live by themselves and there's no room, not for them to acknowledge the good of others, not for them to acknowledge their own shortcomings, and not for them to have God in their lives. I thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it at least 10% of how much I enjoyed to produce it. And thank you in general for being the best audience in the history of podcasts, the Parsha Podcast audience. It's Thanksgiving. It's a time to appreciate the goodness that everyone did. It's time to model ourselves after Judah. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your day, an amazing holiday weekend. Even though we don't typically celebrate non-Jewish holidays, this is not a religious holiday. It's okay for Jews to celebrate Thanksgiving, unlike other festivals that are kind of pagan in nature. So happy Thanksgiving. Have an amazing Thanksgiving. Enjoy the turkey. Enjoy the family. Enjoy the arguments about vaccines and whatnot. I don't know what do people actually do. That's the that's the stigma. The stigma is that you're supposed to argue about vaccines or politics. Enjoy all of that. The football, of course. Have an amazing rest of your week. Have an incredible and sensational and terrific and euphoric and ecstatic and wonderful and memorable Shabbos upcoming. And please go with Help Me Mighty. We'll speak again next week. The email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.